I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, as uh, Venerable Santi was saying, uh, I had a, a late night last night. Not really partying it up. I wasn't hitting the streets or anything. I was being a, a good Buddhist and celebrating Vesak, which is the, the Buddha's birthday. And uh, it's, it's something I've, I've come to love to do, you know, visiting other temples, because it helps me feel connected to the larger Buddhist community. And uh, for me, that's important because for a long time, I was just practicing by myself and and Buddhism was sort of an isolated aspect of my life that really didn't touch everything. But now, Buddhism definitely touches every aspect of my life and sometimes in pretty funny ways because yesterday, before I went to the temple, I was visiting some friends for lunch. And I didn't want to really have to change because I'd already had a busy day anyway. I was here yesterday for the Buddha support group and then had to drive an hour back to Fullerton and everything. And I didn't want to carry a bunch of clothes with me. So I dressed in my all white clothes to, to go to the temple, stopping at my friend's house first. And so, you know, they, they know I'm Buddhist and they know that you know, at this point I'm, I'm teaching and they've seen pictures of me in the white, but they haven't actually seen me interact with them at a little, you know, afternoon lunch party dressed in all white. One friend in particular, I, I, uh, I, I know relatively well, you know, kind of an acquaintance and, uh, and she was curious, like, well, like, you know, what's it, what's it like to, to go and, and celebrate you know, at the, at the temple, like, like, what is, what is it like? And, you know, without really thinking about who the audience was, I just said, well, I mean, it's kind of like church except without the Jesus, you know? <laughs> and, and they looked confused. And I, at, at first it, it didn't really click as to why, but then I realized that I was talking to a room of ex-Protestants and I'm an ex-Catholic. And when you know anything about the Catholic church, that comparison makes way more sense. Like it's it's like mass, and it's like going to Christmas mass because it's the birth of, you know, your savior. Of course, the role of savior is very different in Buddhism than it is in, in Christianity. But there's still this deep reverence for this great teacher who's given you all of this wisdom to carry on in your life, and you're celebrating that person's birth. And you go through a lot of chants and a lot of prayers as a group. You're sitting and you're standing and then you're sta- you know, sitting again and standing again, palms together. You're reciting things that you've all memorized together. You know, For Buddhists, it's the refuge and the precepts. For Catholics, it's the Nicene Creed. So for me, it made total sense to make that comparison. For people who might have gone to Protestant churches growing up who are, or are still Protestant, that comparison may not fly. I mean... I don't even really know what Protestant church is like, but from what I've seen in movies, it's mostly hearing a sermon of some kind, and I don't know. I, I, there could be stuff, but there doesn't seem to be the same kind of ritual that you might find going to a, a, you know, a traditional uh, Buddhist temple or even, say, going to a Catholic mass. A lot of ritual there. And uh, I felt pretty brave going to my, my friend's house for, uh, for that lunch because I was wearing all whites and eating really saucy pizza. 
red sauce everywhere. I was so brave. I couldn't believe that I even attempted it and clearly very mindful because not a drop on my shirt. You know, I, I guess I like to live dangerously sometimes and that's how it came about, you know, eating pizza, wearing all white. So my, my talk for today is, is not on Besak, but I thought it was important enough to, to include it at the beginning because um, for those of us who are Buddhist, you know, consider ourselves Buddhist, I think it's important to, uh, to be a part of the greater tradition, to really get involved and, and go to other temples and other communities and, and socialize and get to know each other. You know, you, the, the world becomes a little smaller. You feel a little, little more included when you do those kind of things. But today uh, I wanted to talk about uh, the six sense bases. And I talked about this a little bit in my talk last month on reverence. And reverence is a word that we don't hear used in, in Buddhism, not anywhere I've found. Certainly, the, I don't think the Buddha ever used that term. No, no Pali term has been translated into reverence. Um, it's just something that seems to work for me as maybe what we might call skillful means, which is something we hear much more in the Mahayana tradition than we hear in the Theravada tradition. And so for me, the skillful means in, in regard to reverence is that we have all of these moments of time that we may not want to pay attention to. We have three feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the pleasant stuff we can really pay attention to a lot, but the unpleasant stuff we don't usually want to pay attention to. And the neutral stuff we sometimes don't even bother to have an opinion on because we're already ignoring it. But something like reverence, something like respect, allows us to maybe have a different uh, relationship with neutral and unpleasant feelings. We can start paying more attention to them. And in Buddhism, we find out how important it is to pay attention to things like the senses because part of the goal in, in Buddhism is the realization of wisdom, and wisdom happens through investigation. It happens through attention, mindfulness, concentration, all of the things that, that we find in the Eightfold Path and, and more. These are the things that we, we cultivate through really tapping into the awareness of the body and the mind. So much of the investigation is squarely in, you know, what the Buddha would call this, this fathom long body, and the reason why is because there's so much happening within. And when we turn within to investigate that, that's when we start seeing really important things like the three marks of existence, you know, unsatisfactoriness, uh, rather impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self. We see that, but only when we're really looking and paying attention in the right way, in a skillful way. So to, uh, to structure this, this talk on the six sense bases, I, I wanted to read one of the or at least segments of uh, one of the suttas in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. So this is the middle-length discourses. Uh, we find many, many more discourses on the six sense bases within the Sangyutta Nikaya, but um, they're, they're really broken up into little chunks, and they're, they're spread out through this big, giant uh, Sangyutta. So like it, I thought it would be better to read one of them from the Majjhima Nikaya because it's so concise. And this one is the Great Sixfold Base 
Sutta or the Mahasala Yatanika Sutta. So I know I, I butchered that because I'm speaking quickly. I seem to do best with the Pali when I speak really slowly, but uh, that sometimes doesn't play over very well. It sounds like I'm trying too hard to say it the right way. So Anyway, the, uh, the six, six-fold base, uh, as I talked about last time, uh, really has 12 aspects. We have the internal aspect and the external aspect. The internal are the sense organs. So our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, and our body. And of course the mind. And then we have the external sense bases, which are the things that come into contact with the organs. So sight, smell, taste, sound, touch, and thought or mental objects. And we find in reading the, the Pali Canon that it is our job to investigate them because we learn so much about the marks of existence. We learn so much about the nature of greed, the nature of lust, the nature of craving. And that's exactly how we find the relationship between the senses, the sense organs, and the sense objects within the 12 links of causation of dependent origination. We find that within the, these causal links, we find, uh, of course, ignorance all the way through. In fact, when you see these, these 12 links listed, ignorance is the very first one at the top. And it might not be the best way to envision them as, as a, this structured ladder. It more, uh, it's more clear to keep it as a, as a circle because since rebirth is something that we talk about in Buddhism, this is a cycle that keeps happening again and again. And we keep finding the same ignorance, the same greed, the same aversion all throughout. And in the part that we can investigate, we have the senses, the sense contact, the feeling that emerges from the contact, and from these feelings, craving can emerge, consciousness and craving. And these terms are used uh, again and again and again. You know, we find consciousness not only listed in these causal links, but we find consciousness listed in the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, volition, consciousness. And even other aspects, both, you know, positive, neutral, negative, we find them again and again and again, these different facets. Same thing with mindfulness, same thing with equanimity, these these same terms show up again and again and again because there are so many ways to know them and understand them, various ways of relating to them. So the Buddha tells us, bhikkhus, when one does not know and see the eye as it actually is, when one does not know and see forms as they actually are, when one does not, does not know and see eye consciousness as it actually is, and he keeps going on, when, he, when we don't see these things as they, as they really are, we abide inflamed by lust, fettered, infatuated, contemplating gratification. Then the five aggregates affected by clinging are built up for oneself in the future, and one's cravings 
which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust, and delights in this and that, increases. One's bodily and mental troubles increase. One's bodily and mental torments increase. One's bodily and mental fevers increase. And one experiences bodily and mental suffering. But then on the other end of that, we can begin investigating. We can understand the senses and how we perceive them, how we interact with them. We can pierce through and see that we've depended on the senses for our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate happiness, that we've looked into the senses, we've looked into the, even the aggregates, because when the Buddha talks about the six sense bases, he also uses the, the exact same language in regard to the aggregates as things that we have thought of in terms of I, me, and mine. We've looked for identity in them. We've looked for gratification and satisfaction in them when continually he's pointing us towards something that is not dependent on anything else, Nibbana. And when we've done that, when we've seen things as they actually are, one abides uninflamed by lust, unfettered, uninfatuated, contemplating danger, that is the danger of the senses and, and lust and, and craving. Then the five aggregates affected by clinging are diminished for oneself in the future. And one's craving, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust, and delights in this or that, is abandoned. One's bodily and mental troubles are abandoned. One's bodily and mental torments are abandoned. One's bodily and mental fevers are abandoned. And one experiences bodily and mental pleasure. The view of a person such as this is right view. His intention is right intention. His effort is right effort. His mindfulness is right mindfulness. His concentration is right concentration. And so you continue on and you hear this and you realize he's talking about the Noble Eightfold Path. And he goes on to, to list many different qualities which are known as bodhipakya dhamma, these 37 qualities conducive to awakening. And these qualities are actually very repetitive. There are a lot of the same qualities. And it's understood that these are really facets. So when we start looking at the Noble Eightfold Path, we see things like mindfulness pop up. But then when we look at the four foundations of mindfulness, that's just more mindfulness. And we see that the four foundations of mindfulness are mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of mental states, and of mental qualities. We also find that there are four right kinds of striving that he lists. And the four right kinds of striving are striving to prevent unskillful states from arising, Striving to abandon the already arisen unskillful states. Striving to uh, uh, induce the arising of skillful states. And striving to sustain and increase the arisen skillful states. And then we have the four bases for spiritual power. Will, energy, consciousness, and examination. The five faculties which are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, 
And then we have the five powers, which might sound familiar because they are also faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. And then the seven enlightenment factors, which are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, <coughs> concentration, equanimity. So alone, those are just a list of words and repetitive ones at that. And so as students of the Dhamma, we have to ask ourselves why there is so much repetition to be found there. Part of that is, be, is because this comes from an oral tradition in which repetition makes, it, makes for easy memorization. Something can be passed on again and again because we're using the same structure, we're using the same words. But also what we're looking at are multiple facets of an idea, multiple facets of a concept, multiple ways we can understand something, the truth, ultimately. And that's one of the reasons why I've been continuing to use the word intimacy in terms of our investigation. Because something like concentration that shows up again and again and again, we have to know intimately to really understand what that means. The word alone, especially when translated from Pali into English as concentration, is very opaque. It's, it's hard to, to understand. But when we start understanding it as samadhi, when we start looking at this tranquility, collectedness, unification, all the multiple meanings, and then investigate that within our body and mind and see what needs to be unified, what needs to be tranquilized, it starts to make more sense. We see the connections there. The same thing with mindfulness, the same idea. And this unity of, of body and mind is also important too, I think, not just in the investigation aspect of, of sati or vipassana, when we're looking for insight, but also on the other side, when we're looking at samatha or the, the jhanas, because unification needs to exist there. In the Anapanasati Sutta, one of the contemplations is to be sensitive to the whole body. Breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. Breathing out, sensitive to the whole body. And some commentators assume that for that to be the, the whole breath, body, and some people assume that to be the entire body, this, this physical body, and there's a lot of back and forth. For me, over time, I've seen that really wear down, because uh, if you're really paying attention to the whole breath body, for me, that the whole body is breathing. If you really sit down with breath meditation, you find all of that there. The whole breath body just is the body breathing. And so for me, when I read that contemplation in the Anapanasati Sutta, I see that the goal, at least in that contemplation, is to be sensitive to this entire complex of body and mind. And why that sensitivity? Because we're meant to be in intimate contact with all of the sense doors. That doesn't mean that we get caught up in the contact, we get lost in the feeling, that we fall into greed and hatred and delusion, but that we pull back enough that we have the mindfulness and concentration to abide in the body. And when we do that, 
things change. Like for for me before that, the the jhanas didn't really happen. Not not the way I've heard them described, not the way I've read about them. But when I began to meditate with the whole body, abide in the senses, abide in the the nose, the eyes, the ears, the tongue, the the body itself, the mind itself, unified and tranquilized, I found that the kind of things that people talk about in the jhanas of like joy and rapture and peace were found there, and they didn't have to be worked at. They just seemed to arise on their own. And I began to see how the path outlined in many of the suttas is not just a prescription, but a description that if we begin the path and follow it in the right way, these things seem to unfold in an effortless kind of way. And so these, these senses become so important. They become the entirety of the path because we're getting to know ourselves. And the Buddha even tells us further that not only are, are we developing all of these qualities, but we see that these two things, serenity and insight, occur in him yoked evenly together. Serenity being samatha and insight being vipassana. So we see that we're developing those qualities of serenity and, and insight, the kind of things we find in the Eightfold Path as mindfulness and concentration yoked together. That's how I've approached meditation in my life. I see those two aspects being of one kind of meditation. Not everyone agrees with that view, but my own experience has, has shown that, to me in any case. He says further that he fully understands by direct knowledge those things that should, should be fully understood. He abandons by direct knowledge those things that should be abandoned. He develops by direct knowledge those that should be developed. And he says that those things that, sh that should be fully understood by direct knowledge are the five aggregates affected by clinging, that is, the material form aggregate affected by clinging, the feeling aggregate, the perception aggregate, the formations or you know volitions, and consciousness aggregate. These are the things that should be fully understood by direct knowledge, which is just to say this, this body and mind. And what things should be abandoned by direct knowledge? Ignorance and craving. These are the things that should be abandoned by direct knowledge. And what things should be developed by direct knowledge? Serenity and insight. These are the things that should be developed by direct knowledge. And what things should be realized by direct knowledge? True knowledge, which I would say is understanding and wisdom, and deliverance, the way to liberation. These are the things that should be realized by direct knowledge. So when I, when I read suttas like this and I, I try to understand their meaning, I always find that, that the Buddhist path is so multifaceted that there are so many aspects to be seen to be known in 
what is so simple and straightforward when we pull back. You know, this, this Eightfold Path is really just the fourth noble truth. And we see how the Eightfold Path, when, when fully developed, has all of these qualities to it. These, these big lists that, that I went through are all the qualities that happened if we just follow the Noble Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth, which is itself embodying and understanding the first three of the four noble truths. Understanding the nature of suffering and how it arises and how it ceases. For me, this is extremely beautiful because I don't, I don't find that kind of beautiful, chaotic simplicity in any other path I've been on. Where there's about as much complexity as you want and about as much simplicity as you want, just depending on how you look at it. That the six sense bases are really in themselves another way of understanding the five aggregates. When we really think about it, the first aggregate is form, which is just to say it's the physical body, which would include the physical senses. And that means that the other aggregates are the aspects of the mental formations, the mental objects, feeling, perception, volition, consciousness. So no matter how we, we look at it, which angles we look at it, we're always trying to come into greater understanding of our bodies and minds, our, our own reality. And we see how this very subjective and individual journey can begin to connect us to something objective, something much larger than our, ourselves, the truth of things, the real nature of things. And when we get into these realizations within the context of meditation, I think we begin to even have a, a bit of a taste of what liberation might be like, what Nibbana might be like. And, you know, some people have said that, that meditating within the, the states of the, of the jhanas, those absorptions, are just a, a small taste of the, the enlightened state. And I, I, I'm beginning to see that. I wouldn't say I do see it, I would say I'm beginning to. And I look forward to how that develops and, and matures. And I invite you all as well to investigate that for yourselves. Because that's another thing that we find within the Buddhist path is that all of these are, are just words until they're applied, until they're seen. And the only way to make that happen is through our own efforts. That we all individually, even though we are collectively here, individually have to explore for ourselves. So I, I hope that's, that's helpful. Uh, I think I would like to open it up now for questions because there's a lot of information that could be unpacked, but because I have this big, broad picture, it might be best to see what you all found and would like to know more about. So I, I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you.